It has been said, in polite company, one should avoid the following three topics. Politics, religion, and money. I'm going to apologize in advance, but kind of not really, because we're going to manage to hit on all three of those topics this morning. My name is Caitlin Snyder. I'm the Connections Director here at City Church. And that is just one of the many titles that I wear. I am also, and there's going to be pictures on the screen of some pretty people, I'm also the daughter to Sue and Mike Snyder, who are, um, they lead our local outreach team, our good neighbor team here at City Church. I am the sister to Jake and Emily. I am a sister-in-law to Vince. I am a soon-to-be aunt to a baby boy who will be born at the end of October. I'm so, so, so excited. Um, I am a best friend to several people across the U.S. I am Miss Caitlin to some of my very favorite little humans. And my favorite non-Jesus-related title is this, Duke's Human. Duke is my almost two-year-old golden doodle. He is spunky, stubborn, and very, very loud. Um, Duke runs really fast, sometimes at me, and can knock me over. Duke inhales his food. Duke communicates very, very loudly. And Duke likes to sit on chairs, like human chairs. When I go to my parents' house, he's not allowed on their furniture. So I take a chair with me so that he can sit on a chair on the back porch. I'm not kidding you. It's actually happened. Caitlin, why'd you bring that chair? Oh, it's not my chair. It's Duke's chair. Um, Duke belongs to me. Um, and so Duke also, he has some rules for how he navigates the world we live in and our home. He has to sit before he eats. He does not do so very patiently, I may add. Um, he has to go in his crate before I leave the house, and he wears a leash when we go on walks or runs. Even though I love Duke fiercely, there are rules in which he navigates our home and our world. In fact, it is because I love him fiercely and I know what's best for him that I set the rules. And the same is true about how I interact with God. God created it, he's in charge of it, and he gets to set the rules. So it's important as we wrap up this four-week series on worldview that we remember that who we belong to determines how we interact with the world around us. Especially as we talk about some of the systems that exist in our world. So when we talk about worldview like we have over the past series, we're not talking about the earth that we stand on, although that's part of it. We're also talking about the political, economic, and um, political, economic, and just social systems in which we interact with. So let's use me as an example. So we're going to first talk about those systems, then we're going to dive into what God's word has to say about a couple of things, because it's the best thing we can learn from, um, and then we're going to apply it to our lives. So if you're here for that, I want to hear you. Um, so economic systems, let's use me as an example. I am a resident and a citizen of the United States, which means that there are rules I must follow as I interact with the world around me. I'm also a resident of Ohio, of Hamilton County, 
and of St. Bernard, which gives me even more rules to follow. I'm also the participant in an economic system called capitalism. Um, yes, the church pays my salary. Thank you, by the way. Um, but if I choose to take my skills someplace else, there's like a little number, like I'm a Sims character, above my head where I can take that someplace else. I can take my education, my skills, and my experience someplace else and make money. I'm not bound here. The market has set a price for me. Um, and I also pay taxes because I belong to this society, and I'm required to. Try not to, and the government will find you. Um, and so, but, and this is, this is going to be the most important thing I say. I do, oh, sorry. I also vote. I vote sometimes for Democrats, sometimes for Republicans, and sometimes for independents. But listen really closely. This actually is the most important thing I'm going to say. I do not belong to capitalism. I do not belong to America. I do not belong to the state of Ohio, Hamilton County, or the village of St. Bernard. And I do not belong to a political party. I belong to God. And so do you. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, you do not belong to any of those things. You also belong to God. And so as we interact with these topics about worldview, let's remember who we belong to. Because God has something to say about how we interact with those things. And we're going to be talking about the value of life. Um, and I am like, meh, I don't really know if I want to talk about this. Chris, thanks very much. Um, but we're going to talk about the value of life as it relates to three different people groups. The unborn, the differently abled, and the criminal. I'm very aware that this is not an exhaustive list of people we could be talking about as we talk about the value of their lives. And we are not, as we talk about the unborn, going to be pinning women against babies or the unborn. That is a dichotomy that, believe it or not, the world has taught us we must do. That either you care about the life of a woman or you care about the life of the unborn. And this morning, we're going to reject that in the name of Jesus and say, I can care both fiercely about women and I can care about the life of the unborn um, and if you don't believe me, I have a wild feminist sign hanging in my bedroom, and I've also spent five years of my career working in international adoption. I don't think for any reason that we have to pick one or pick the other. And also know that when we enter the conversation about the unborn, I've sat with the statistics and I've sat across the table from women who have chosen to have abortions. If that, that number is one in four women, and that number holds true both inside and outside the church, and that number holds true in my friendships with women. And so I enter this conversation as one who knows that that is a reality that women have found themselves in. And so if you are sitting in this room and you have had an abortion, hear me loud and clear. I'm so sorry that you found yourself in a position where you believe that to be your best or and only option. And if the blood of Jesus does not cover everything, it covers absolutely nothing. 
Um, And so if that's you, there is no shame here. Um, And you are welcome in this space. Um, And I look forward to hearing your story someday. So we are going to pick up this conversation in the Bible. We're going to be in the book of Luke all morning long. Um, And so if you have a Bible and you want to grab it, that's my preferred way. You want to open it on your phone, that's great too. Um, However you interact with it. But we are going to be in Luke 1. Luke was a doctor in his first life. And then he later meets um, a bunch of Christians and he realizes that there's something about this Jesus movement that he wants to know more about. He saw the way they lived their lives and he said, huh, they might be onto something. And so with the precision and detail that only a doctor has, praise be to God, he goes out and he searches and finds eyewitness accounts to figure out what actually happened from the time that Jesus is conceived till the time that he dies. And then what is it about the early church that's special? And he writes about it first in the gospel according to Luke and then in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, And so this morning we're going to meet Luke um, in Luke 1, starting in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. There's two, three, really, main characters that we meet in these two verses. We're not going to talk much about the angel, and we're not going to talk much about Elizabeth. But we meet a woman named Mary, a man named Joseph, and who we come to know a little bit later is an unborn baby in Mary's stomach named Jesus. Mary So she was a virgin, likely between 13 and 15 years old. Um, She lived in a town called Galilee in the region of, no, I'm sorry, town called Nazareth in a region called Galilee. Um, It was said in other gospels, nothing good can come from Nazareth. It was a backwards town, very rural, um, not people of high value to be honest. Um, They didn't carry a lot of standing in society. So we've got, she's young, she's unmarried and pregnant, um, and she's betrothed to Joseph. Joseph, on the other hand, he is a man in the lineage of David, which if you're not familiar, David um, actually comes from the line of Abraham. And back early in the book of Genesis, God gives this promise to Abraham, and it's this. I will make your, new, your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky, and all people will be blessed through them. It's all we get there. We don't know that this is going to be a baby, but the covenant, that promise, is confirmed over and over and over again through the Old Testament. And then that promise is given a little bit more specificity with David. We learn that maybe this promise is going to actually be a person, a king, somebody thought to bring power. And that is through Joseph's lineage. So we've got Mary, a woman with very little to offer, and a woman who becomes pregnant as a teenager. Both Mary and Joseph are, if they stepped into America in 2022, we would call them people of color. 
Um, And so they, Mary has everything to lose by being pregnant. If she carries this baby to term, she may not be able to stay married to Joseph because we don't know where this baby came from. And yet, Mary does so. If Mary was born and lived with us right here in 2022, it's possible that that baby doesn't make it to have his first breath. She meets a lot of the statistics for someone that may choose not to carry a pregnancy to term. And yet, God. There is a very important part in this story where God appears to Mary and says, do not be afraid. And even though, so abortion was very unlikely, so we're taking a little bit of liberties right there. Um, But Mary has the baby, gets adopted by Joseph, into the lineage of David. It is because of adoption that Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. It is not through Mary's line. It is through Joseph's. Praise be to God. He fulfills all the prophecies, and we get the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And his birth flips the world upside down. Everything changes, and it changes so much that the way that he interacts with people creates a movement, a movement of the early Christians that loved people so hard. Abortion was uncommon in the time of Jesus. Instead, people would leave their children out to die. The practice of infanticide was a whole lot more common. And so children were born, like, like I just talked about, with me, with a little dollar sign on their heads. Um, girls were, they were going to cost the family more money because it would be a long time until they could ever give the money back. Um, they weren't going to work or they were going to cost the family money in marriage. And so the families, without a lot of money and a lot of status, would sometimes choose to forfeit their children. And this was before the time of being able to leave babies in a hospital or a police department or a fire department. Instead, children were just left. They could be eaten by wild animals, they could die because of the elements, or somebody could take them and raise them for labor. And it's easy to judge these parents, but instead I wanna tell you about the early Christians. The early Christians saw people not based on what they had to offer the world or what they had to offer them, but as valuable because of who God is. And so the early Christians, because of the way that Jesus lived his life, would go out searching for vulnerable children. They would dig through trash cans in the middle of the night And before there was any social safety net, so there's no Medicaid, right? Medicaid, yep. Um, No Medicaid, there's no public school, and there's no foster subsidies. The early Christians took these children into their home and raised them as their own. Because they knew that God saw life not as what a person had to offer him or had to offer the world, but as loved and valued. And they knew this because of how Jesus had interacted with people. 
Also, in the Roman culture, early Roman culture, people who were differently abled or who had disabilities, they were, they were cast out from society. There was a lot of disp- like a lot of myths around disability, um, that it was co- due to karma or the sin of an individual or maybe even the sin of a parent. And so stay away from us. We don't want what you have. Your disability may be contagious. And even though this was their flesh and blood, they were often sent away to the outskirts of society, and they were outcasts. Um, They lived rough lives without a lot of resources and without a lot of human interaction. Their lives, they lived us the least of these, truly. Um, And they lived where where culture couldn't even see them. They were far off. Um, but Jesus, Jesus was, oh my goodness, the wildest man ever. Um, and he went out and searched out the outcast. He went to the outskirts of society to give dignity to those whom culture had said you have none. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. He goes out, he puts his hands on people. He looks them in the eyes and he says, you matter to me because you matter to God. He did it so many times. Just in the gospel, so quick note here. We know that the gospels are not actually an exhaustive list or an exhaustive narrative of all of the interactions that Jesus had with people. We know that from scripture, John tells us that these are just some of the stories. So I imagine there's even more out there somewhere that when we get to heaven, we're going to get even more accounts of people who got to meet Jesus as a man. And we're going to hear even more stories about the dignity that Jesus restored to people just by simply being with them. But we do have a nice list. Jesus interacted with a man with leprosy, the servant of the centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, a man who was paralyzed, a woman who was sick, two men who were blind, a man who was mute, the daughter of the Canaanite woman, a boy who was with seizures, two men who were blind, another man who was blind, a man with a crippled hand, a man who was mute, a woman who was crippled, 10 lepers, a man with a disfigured ear, a boy with a disease, a man who was lame, a man who was blind, and that is our Jesus. Let's go. That's awesome. That is the number of times that the gospel gives us people who were differently abled who Jesus interacts with. Because he travels the distance to give dignity to people. He says your life matters to God. And your life matters to me. Jesus saw people not as what they had to offer him which is nothing, and not as what they had to offer the world, because especially in that case, they did not have much to offer culture. But he saw them as loved and valued by God. And the beginning of his life flips life as we know it upside down, and then we have miracles throughout his whole life of him giving value to the unvaluable by culture. And then at the very end of his life, One of my very favorite stories, we're going to meet him as he is being hung on the cross. 
So if you still have a Bible with you or you want to open up your Bible app, we are going to go verse by verse through Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. So this would have been on the morning of Jesus' death, the day we call Good Friday. They're being led out. There's two men. Um, And as we walk through this, I'm going to do my best to narrate it. The him that we see is going to be Jesus. The they is actually going to be the crowd and or the rulers. Um, And I'll do my best to help us understand where the criminals come in. And so back in this time, a long time ago, over 2,000 years ago, um, we did not put people to death the same way we do today. Instead, they were crucified. I think it's important to remember that. I had to, like, put myself in that mindset. And so we've got two men who are both criminals being led out with him to be executed. Let's think about it. It's a morning. Um, If you are an Enneagram 1, you probably would have been okay with this scene because people were going to get what they deserved, right? Or maybe you're an older brother or an older sister and you like it when consequences happen to people who deserve it right? Maybe that's just me, not an Enneagram one, an older sister. Um, But I'm okay when the natural consequences hit people. I'm just fine with it. So I've got two criminals. If I'm in this, like, if I'm there, I actually might be okay. Um, Sadly, like, that is my flesh speaking, not Jesus through me. Um, And so they lead him out to be executed, and they, this is Jesus, and the two criminals come to a place called the Skull, And they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. So we're going to go criminal one, criminal two, just for the sake of my story. Um, And they're all three crucified, which means they've carried their crosses out. And this is the point where the nails go through their hands. This is the criminal's death. Now remember... Criminal one and criminal two have done something so heinous that they deserve this death. This is their death penalty. And Jesus in the middle, the crowd thinks he's been so blasphemous that he deserves it too. He's claimed to be the son of God. Who dare do that? Except for maybe the actual son of God. And so we've got, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Forgive the crowd. Forgive the rulers. For they know not what they do. And then the whole crowd divides up his clothing by casting lots. Funny fact, Jesus' clothes were worth something. That's why they wanted them, right? They wouldn't have been casting lots for rags. So if we think my critique on capitalism is thinking that a better economic system that has no value, like different value, is what we're headed for. I just, I don't necessarily see that to be true of scripture. Um, But his clothes were worth something. But as they divide up his clothes by casting lots, then all three of them are hanging there naked with no dignity left. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. 
And the soldiers also come up and mock him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And he could have, my friends. He himself could have saved himself. Um, And there was a written notice above his head, This is the king of the Jews. And then we've got one of the criminals who hung there, who's hurling insults at him. And he says, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. He's saying, well, if you are who you say you are, then I think that you should save all of us. Okay? He's on the right, his right, or my right. Um, And then, but the other criminal, criminal number two, rebukes him. And he says, so here's Jesus in the middle. They're like kind of bickering. Like maybe your kids bicker when you stand in between them if you're a parent. um, Or your coworkers biting back at each other. Um, But the criminal rebukes, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? All three of us, or yeah, all three of us here are going to end up the same. We're all here naked on crosses. We're not saving anybody. Um, And then the criminal goes on to say, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man named Jesus, He has done nothing wrong. This criminal too, what he really is saying is, I get, like, I deserve what I'm about to get, but Jesus doesn't. And in that, he is saying that he knows who Jesus is. He's saying, I believe that this man in the middle really is who he says he is, that he's not worthy of the death he's getting. He's saying, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that, my friends, is all it takes. And then he says, we're still talking about criminal on the criminal number two. He says, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, sorry, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's saying, I know the only way I'm getting eternal life is through you. You are the only one who can give it. And so, will you remember me? I believe in you. I believe you are who you say you are. And I want to be with you forever. Will you remember me? And Jesus answers him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus saw people not as what they had done or what they had failed to do, but as loved and valued by God. And he does that even to the prisoner on death row. This story declares that there is, none of us are too far gone for our lives to matter to God. Culture may have written us off, may have written these individuals off and say, you're getting what you deserve, but God says no. God says, your life has value. You can be redeemed. Even in your last moments. Even when you don't have a chance to demonstrate that your life was worth saving. I can live my life in such a way, friends, that I'm like, I just need to prove myself worthy of saving. And I think I'm not the only one in this room who thinks that. That because God saved me, then I must do X, Y, or Z in order for him to love me even more. 
And this story of the criminal on the cross declares that that is simply not true. That Jesus sees you not based on what you have to offer him or what you have to offer the world, but as loved and valued by God. Let me say that one more time. Jesus sees you not as what you have to offer him or what you have to offer the world, but as loved and valued by God. And this is an invitation to us this morning, friends. If you have made the decision to follow Jesus, God sees you like he sees Jesus. And if you haven't, I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to talk to you after service. There's an invitation for you too this morning to say that you believe in the God who created the universe and that he also created you for a purpose. And the thing that separates you from God is sin. And sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God, and we've all done it. And the only way to overcome our sin is not to prove ourselves worthy of being saved, but to declare that Jesus is the only way that we can do it. Jesus is the only way we can get back to God. He is the only way we can receive eternal life. He is the only way that all lives have value. He is the only way to be reconciled to God, reconciled to yourself, and reconciled to each other. And so... If that has not been a decision that you've made, I would love to chat with you a little bit more um, and just share with you the wild love of Jesus that loves the unborn who has done nothing wrong yet, that loves the differently abled and those who have been outcast from society and who loves the criminal worthy of death because of what he or she has done. It's a crazy, wild, no-limit love, and it's worth it. And for us as Christians, if you do follow Jesus, if you belong to God, we've got some ways that we can apply this message on worldview to our own lives. The first one, I'd say, is we have to evaluate our own hearts. We have to sit with the fact that we are human and we are sinners and there's some kind of life that we value more than others. Because we do. There is some life that we value more than others. And that's not okay with God. As scripture tells us, all life has value. And we are to see and live and love the way that Jesus saw, lived, and loved. And so we have to sit with our own bias and our own prejudice and say, okay, God, how can I better honor you in my heart? What sort of life do I value more? And we do it every single day without even realizing it because culture ingrains us to love some sorts of life more than others. We say that young, thin, pretty, white, Life matters a little bit more. And we do it in all sorts of ways. And so we have to sit with God and say, God, show me how to love others the way that you love them. How to value their lives. Show me which life I value more than others. And then we 
get to start choosing our thoughts and our words kindly. One of my very best friends in Indianapolis, he grew up in the Deep South. He grew up in Mississippi, graduated in 2008 from high school, and when he graduated from high school, they still had a black and a white homecoming court. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was shocked. Like, I was full out shook. I still don't fully believe him. If I wouldn't have, like, seen the pictures, I just wouldn't. But the way that he grew up has shaped his worldview. And so when we met in 2017, and I started to talk to him a little bit about books I was reading, conversations I was having on race, he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, of course, like, I know racism is real, but like, Kaylin, I don't even know how to engage. And I'm like, well, you have to understand white privilege, and I'm going on and on and on. I'm probably reading the new Jim Crow at that point, and mass incarceration, and infant mortality rates, and rattling off statistics, and he's like, yeah, I, I, I just, I don't really know. And I remember being like so angry, like, what do you mean? Like, all these things. And the next morning, our pastor preached a sermon on race, um, and he texted me after, and I remember him saying, I realize I have a lot to learn. Will you be patient with me? And in the last five years, that has become one of the most formative friendships in my life because he pushes back. And he shares about how he grew up and what he's experiencing has shaped him to value life in the ways that he does. And I've seen incredible transformation in how he views life. I remember him calling me in 2020 and he's like, Kaylin, did you know that like some housing laws used to discriminate against black people? And I'm like, yeah, Cody, I, I, I've been telling you this for three years. But I'm so grateful for a friendship where we both let down our guards and instead of saying you're right or you're wrong, we we're like, let's learn together. And he's taught me so much. And that is the beauty of church family, that we get to teach each other that instead of being on opposite ends of issues, we can go, what would God say? And can you, can you teach me a little bit more about that? Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience? Because you, your opinion has value, and I, I want to learn from you. So we get to evaluate our hearts. We get to choose our thoughts and our words kindly. And the third thing we get to do is we get to work and bring others along. Maybe this message has you thinking, there's just a lot I don't know. Me too. There's a lot I don't know about a lot of things. And God invites us to learn more. I can tell you which people groups I care the most about and where I've done my work and my education. And that doesn't mean that I don't value those other things. But my heart beats fast for the vulnerable child. I spent five years working in international adoption. I am drawn to kiddos in need of families. And I'm drawn to help figure out how to help vulnerable families stay together. 
I think it's really brave when a single mom decides to parent her own child, and I want to figure out how to best support her. Don't catch me on a day where I'm, like, ready to, you know, vomit all these ideas off you because I can do it. Um, But I also need friends who care about the refugee, and we need that in our church body. And we need friends who care about mass incarceration. And we need friends that care about prison reform. And we need friends that care about the life of the unborn or the woman who's had an abortion and is dealing with the trauma. We need to know where we can, what companies we can support that employ people who are differently abled and pay them a livable wage. It is not reasonable to think that we can all value life exactly the same, or that our hearts are all going to break for the same people groups. But what is really beautiful, especially as we are a young, growing church, city church, is that you get to bring what you're passionate about, and I get to bring what I'm passionate about, and together we can value all of life as a family. And so I cannot wait for us to hear what the fruit of even a conversation like this becomes. Tell me what you care about. I'll tell you what I care about, and we can care about it together. How's that? Okay, I'm going to pray, and the band is going to lead us. Um, But thank you so much for being here. Father God, um, we love you. We declare that your word has power. And so we just sit in this space praying against any condemnation. Um, or that we should do or maybe could do more, God. And we just ask, Spirit, would you move among us? Would you convict us to see life the way that you see life? We declare that all life has value from conception until last breath, God. Would we be people, would we be a church that cares about that and declares that winsomely, kindly, boldly and courageously. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.